Shatter the stigma, mend the mind. Welcome to the live broadcast of Talk Revolution, hosted by Dr. Paul Sambataro, neurocognitive scientist, author, and retired school psychologist. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Talk Revolution. This is our seventh broadcast on BBS Radio. We are here today to discuss current topics with new perspective based on cognitive function. Talk Revolution is aimed at keeping the fires of innovation, pioneering, and our shared culture of giving burning for future generations. The orientation of these discussions is to bring to light the importance of the underlying foundation to solving our most social problems, disabilities, poverty, violence, crime, and all those society ills we rail against, but with little regard to consequence and efficacy. Last week, the podcast replayed an interview with the Veterans News Hour and is archived on BBS Radio as well as my site, www.emotionalbudgeting.com. Today's podcast episode is focused on diet, specifically the association of cognitive functioning, emotional budgeting process, and our diet. Our discussion will center on our emotional responses and food. This is a call-in podcast. You may at any time feel free to call in with any questions you may have in regards to cognitive function and our program, Emotional Budgeting. Please call toll-free 888 888- 627-6008. This is, this is a podcast in which diet is an important part of what fulfills one of those needs. It is important in addressing many of the different purposes behind which emotional processing is evolved. The importance today, there will be quite a bit of technical detail in regards to diet, but the essence of today's topic is to bring to light while the process and the solution is relatively simple it is very complex issue that drives the dieting and the reward-seeking physiological system. So while we may at some point discuss some very technical and scientific details surrounding our physiology, physiology in regards to dieting, I would like our audience to know that this is simply an understanding and the research as to why the emotional budget program was designed and why it works. Diet. I would like to address, first off, general adaptation principles to our physiological makeup in regard to nutrition and evolution. In principle, And there always seems to be an exception to the rule in biological adaptations. In principle, the more abundant a resource 
is, the less efficient an animal or human will need to adapt to retrieve those essential nutrients. A quick example would be the camel. The camel is in a very dry environment normally, or has evolved in a very dry environment, the desert-type landscape, and they have adapted many uh, variations in ability to retain water and as well as use very little. That is just one example. Another common example uh, for humans, especially, is when there's an abundant amount of, in the environment, say, a vitamin. For example, vitamin C. The efficiency of the body to retrieve that resource will likely be very low, as there would be very little need to be efficient. Such a place where fruit is easily grown in temperate or subtropical climates, where vitamin C may be very scarce, the body would likely adapt to being very resourceful in conserving and acquiring that vitamin, such as in an Arctic environment. Somewhere in between and depending on the resource, each population will accept, have access to certain foods that would regulate their efficacy to the scarce resource and be less or more resilient for those resources that are in abundance. In other words, be less resilient for those resources in abundance. Translation to current times. Now that there is an abundance of most different kinds of food across most nations, not counting times of poverty or war and war nations, for example, in America, access to food is generally available to all populations with no limits on a particular product, except perhaps price. So now, in general, all foods are available for most times of the year. Our current food availability being a direct outcome to our past of 100 to 1,000 of years ago when food was consumed in a seasonal and by location, depending on where you were, where your population uh, genetics uh, developed its adaptation to food and nutrients. The results, with mixed population and genetics, with migration, we are likely to be unaware of those foods we have eaten in the past. So because of where we are now compared to where our adaptation occurred and the migration, we generally would not have a sense of what foods we would fit best with or what food was available in the greatest abundance thousands of years ago. For example, we can understand those from Nordic states may have plenty of availability of vitamin B through the development of such uh, items as beer. So when there's an absence of vitamin B in the diet in another location or country, there may be some confusion as to why there's a feeling or need to drink beer. Beer in Europe tends to be heavier and contain greater amount of vitamin B from yeast formation in the brew versus what was generally distilled in America. 
now that we have more microbreweries that are being developed, we're likely to have greater vitamin B content. This has been likely an adaptation of the body adapted to early human history of preserving vitamins through a harsh winter condition. Again, this is an example. Another, although Mediterranean food is taught as healthy, it is likely because when removed from those locations, people from the Mediterranean may find some of the most important health risks are due to the lack of cholesterol-reducing foods. In other words, we have good uh, cholesterol, we have bad cholesterol in our bodies, and some of us are able to, are adapted to deal with bad cholesterol, and others, because there was no need to, do not have that. The Being exposed to the abundance of olive oil may not need the adaptation to manage good cholesterol, neither lost the ability or had no need to adapt in that ability to deal with bad cholesterol because they were surrounded by fruit, olive oil, and things that not necessarily that had bad cholesterol in them. When that population, which previously had little need to regulate bad cholesterol, is transplanted to a new location, such as America, without access to an abundant resource, such as olive oil, they are likely going to be susceptible to foods high in cholesterol, such as eggs, butter, milk, and in general, uh, many fats or meats. To understand one's strengths and vulnerabilities, one may review their genetic file in areas of traditional eating patterns to identify those possible foods that were in abundance and those in least supply. The human physiological response to diet is as complex and varied as the gene they represent. A careful approach with your doctor and a thorough understanding of family history will help guide you through the maze of healthy eating. For our purpose, diet is also influenced by our cognitive process and the influence of stress and anxiety related to our limbic system. And that's where we are going to discuss as part of the ongoing design of the Emotional Budget Program. Some genetic companies do offer diet profiling to give some indication of an individual's genetic background and in turn allows for some understanding of an individual's dietary needs. As most of our dietary needs are met and available for most part, that leaves that another important component of our dietary expression. Again, this is and not we are not here today to try and cover every single aspect of diet, but only to give examples of where there are it is a complex issue, but we have we are looking to discuss the ability to resolve some of that with the design of supporting the ability to 
work through our dietary issues. So that other part is emotion. In a previous podcast, we discussed the overall impact of emotion on the limbic system. For dietary purposes, the impact of an individual's emotion also impacts the generation of appetite. So the purpose, again, of our talk evolution is revolution is not to offer a pancreas for everyone, panacea for everyone, for everything, to introduce to our audience the necessity of implementing a program such as the Emotional Budgeting Program as a starting point, foundational basis in which to move forward with life, social, and other mental issues from the bottom up. It has been noted time and time again on this show the failure of our health and institutional systems to influence our cognitive function through behaviors. We need to start at the foundation of influencing our cognitive functioning to effectively influence positive behaviors for positive outcomes. This behavior-driven approach still impacts the constant drumbeat that a change in behavior i.e. change in diet, will change your cognitive function. Yes, I agree. If you can have the discipline to eat properly, then you're likely to have the ability and determination to function. The problem to any behavioral approach is the failures and susceptibilities to failing. Supporting the brain to support behaviors is a much more effective means to success. In this case, as it is in an emotional-based stress and anxiety, is to support the mind to organize the emotional data for filing away in what we describe, such as the filing and organized emotional data in the mind to provide, will provide the feedback in reducing stress and anxiety, which in turn reduces the synaptic neural pathway to poor dietary decision-making. Remember, in our earlier podcast, the ultimate outcome of completing the emotional budget program is to provide a sense of control and ability to make decisions based on a singular issue. So as an example of what is out there in today's society as news, as information, we can start by the general, an example of the general drumbeat we see in that is noted in the observer. Changing your diet can have the same emotional impact as getting a new job, name of the article by Chelsea Vincent. And in there, they, it is an example of placing behavior before cognitive functioning. So this is in part from that article. So before resorting to prescription pills for mood disorders, reducing sources of dietary inflammation might be worth trying. Many, so here the, the advice is to change your diet and you will change how you feel. Many would be surprised to learn that evidence shows that same inflammation plays a role in psychiatric disorders including bipolar disorder, mania, schizophrenia, autism, post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Those seeking to reduce sources of dietary inflammation would be advised to reduce or eliminate personal food allergies. Intake of refined sugar, artificial sweeteners, additives, processed carbohydrates, trans fats, and so on. And we know that those with autism can be important. But again, this is information in which the discipline or the structure is in place to to change behavior, and then the feedback is it will change your cognitive functioning with improve on it. Emotional thoughts that lay chaotic and unorganized in the waiting room of our mind, waiting to be processed, to compete for the immediate demands of daily tasks, such as organize, organizing our eating habits. So the problem immediately comes to bear on this, is that those who are working through emotional issues, much more severe than simply unorganized data, will have the extra task of not only being structured, disciplined, and determined to eat better, but at the same time, they're competing with the unorganized and the chaotic emotional turmoil that is likely to be in waiting to be processed in their mind, in an individual's mind. The unprocessed emotions become a burden on the remainder of our intellect trying to respond to our immediate environment. We have said this many times in previous podcasts, but in our adaptation, the distress of the mind is going to be in regards to an unprocessed emotions. When they become a burden, trying to respond to our immediate environment. When the brain feels it is overwhelmed, this sets off the potential myriad of adverse signals to our physiologically driven behaviors that possibly include self-correcting actions that may include how and what we eat, as well as, unfortunately, possible self-medicating behaviors and attempt to satisfy the brain-driven search for resolving its sense of stress and anxiety. The connection between stress and eating behavior is explained in this research by Yao and Potenza in 2013 titled Stress and Eating Behaviors. And in this, I will, there are many parts in which I will be referring to because it addresses those examples of failure to control dieting through one's behavior. To, by it to increase cognitive function to make dieting successful as well as a technical details in the driving force of the reward system physiological so this is simply an important part of understanding why emotional budgeting was designed to address this, but also why it works. And in this uh, article placed in the National Institute of Health, uh, the uh, government-funded portion, this is where the description 
is important for the outcome and how we are looking to resolve the social issues of obesity. For the purpose of this discussion, we define poor eating behaviors with the outcome of obesity. So we have addressed that we are not going to deal directly with how healthy we are eating, but the fact that perhaps we are eating too much or at times too little. We know it's also about what we eat that can also adversely impact health. In the United States, about 35 to 36% estimates from a 2008 research for 1.4 billion adults globally are overweight. This is a dramatic overweight of approximately 50 pounds over BMI, body mass index, and that at least 200 men and 300 women are obese. Obesity represents an important risk factor for potentially life-threatening health problems, including cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, and certain cancers. There have been multiple and diverse attempts to provide mechanisms for individuals to lose weight and maintain a healthy body weight. However, most have failed to sustain lasting effects, with patients often regaining their lost weight within five years. The difficulty in treating decreasing the prevalence of obesity may reflect the complex issues of obesity as a condition. One conceptualization supported by recent research in the addiction and nutrition field is that foods, particularly highly tasty, in this research palatable, and energy-dense ones, may be addictive in ways similar to drugs of abuse. These findings have consequences consequently led to the conceptualization of foods as drugs. Stress, and this is a research uh, of this paper that I mentioned by Yao and Potenza, 2013, Stress and Eating Behaviors. Stress has been considered a critical risk factor in the development of addictive disorders and relapse to addictive behaviors. So there is a direct cause and effect in regards to stress. Stress and eating behavior. For our purposes today, we consider the definition of stress as a process involving perception, appraisal, and response to noxious events or stimuli. Stress experiences can be emotionally, interpersonal conflict, loss of loved ones, unemployment, physiologically, uh, through food deprivation, illness, drug withdrawal, can be challenging. We have discussed in every podcast, cognitive function impacts every aspect of our lives and how important it is to address the cognitive functioning of processing emotional data to provide us a healthy platform to make healthy and good social decisions while reducing stress and anxiety. In addition, regular and binge use of addictive substances may serve as pharmacological stressors. Acute stress activates adaptive responses. 
but prolonged stress leads to wear and tear of the regulatory system, resulting in biological alterations that weak, weaken stress-related adaptive processing and increases de-susceptibility. So we discussed in the early podcast how important adaptation is across all of these. And in diet today, there is a genetic load implication that we discussed briefly at the beginning of this discussion. These are important considerations, but now thus mildly challenging stimuli, limited integration can be good stress. So sometimes a good stress helps increase motivation to achieve goal-directed outcomes in homeostasis. This can result in a sense of mastery and accomplishment and can be perceived as positive and exciting, as is one does when drinking coffee and one feels an increase in uh, ability to focus and move forward. However, the more prolonged and more intense the stressful situation, the lower the sense of mastery and adaptability, and thus the greater the stress response and risk for persistent homeostatic dysregulation. This research supports the need to address our emotional state of mind. The perception and appraisal of stress relies on specific aspects of presenting external and internal stimuli and may be moderated or mediated by personality traits, emotional state, and physiological responses that together contribute to the experience of this stress. Stress is a challenge to the natural homeostasis of an organism. In turn, the organism may react to stress by producing a physiological response to regain equilibrium lost by the impact of the stressor. One such homeostasis that is disrupted is that of the feeding behavior. So now we begin to connect the dots again of how stress and the physiological response is a pathway that is used over and over again by the brain with the body, but does not necessarily discriminate as to degrees of severity. Research indicates 40% of humans in general will increase food intake and roughly 40% decrease their caloric intake when stressed while approximately 20% of people do not change feeding behaviors during stressful periods. This is adaptation that we discussed in regards to eating and stress. Now we move to the stress eating and reward system, which is the development. Now we begin to include the cognitive portion of synaptic pathway building and the reward system. Activation of the HPA, the hypothalamal, pituitary adrenal cortical, access is responsible for the initiation of glucocorticoid stress response in all vertebrate animals linked to the activation of the mesolimbic dopaminergic system, a network of strongly related to reward. So that was a complicated, complicated limbic a description of our neuro and chemical pathway that ultimately lets us know the brain that we are rewarded when the brain is happy. 
anatomically, stressors can stimulate also increase the CFR, which is the cortotropin-releasing factor system mediating the physiological response to external stressors. Again, this is another portion of a system that the brain as an organ regulates in response and at times in pathophysiological of anxiety and depression. So not only do we have a response feedback, a biological feedback of the external stressors, but also in response or producing anxiety and depression. So it's a feedback that goes both ways, all of which part of the brain reward system commonly implicated in substance abuse. Both food and drugs of abuse may exploit similar pathways in the brain including the dopamine or dopaminergic and the opioidergic systems. And today, we all have heard uh, many times over of the opioid uh, abuse across America. And I would like to point out that it is generally looked at as simply an addiction and we are, I believe, missing the connection to our emotional stress, our brain distress signal that reward an individual. The brain is rewards the individual when it is supplied with a reward pathway. And in disrupting it and preventing it, we will discuss that at the end of this podcast. But it's important to note, I believe, this article addresses food and drugs are using the same physiological pathway. Basically, that is the research indicating that at times the reward pathway system is utilized both for drugs and for food. It's similar and that stress and anxiety is a lar- plays a large part of the driving force behind that reward pathway. That, I believe, is an important understanding in correcting or changing or solving our social problems, such as drug overdose, uh, drug abuse. When when there is an increased drug taking in high-fat diets, there is a biological feedback reinforcing, this is from the research article, reinforcing an increase in sensitization of reward pathways, including within the dorsal striatum, there are other technical pathways, but in the end, it's is the medial prefrontal prefrontal cortex regions that it's impacting, which in turn influences preference for addiction, addictive substances, and hyperpalatable, which means yummy food, 
and increases craving and intake. So this is directly from the research article, Stress and Behaviors, supporting uh, many of the other research and discussion around emotion and the foundation for uh, ways in which it's associated with emotional distress. Dopamine has been associated with reward sensitivity, conditioning, and control with respect to food and drug of abuse. Increased dopamine release has been reported in responses to food and food cues, both of which are crucial aspects of food intake. Repeated stimulation of the dopaminergic reward pathways may trigger neurobiological adaptations that may promote progressively compulsive behaviors. So again, it's finding the likely relationship that these pathways are both a reward pathway can be used either in regards to drug abuse or through food. Exposure to acute stress during a PET scan, which is a positron emission tomography uh, of the brain, revealed that both stress and cortisol release enhanced dopamine release from the part of the brain, part of the system, which is labeled NACC, is thought to facilitate goal-directed behaviors by integrating information related to limbic drive and motor planning. Importantly, this motivational circuit overlaps with limbic regions. Limbic regions being the amygdala, interior, cingulate, cortex, hippocampus, and insula that underlie emotion, underlie emotion, stress, reactivity, and learning and memory processes, contributing to cognitive and behavioral response critical to homeostasis. So this may seem technical in regards to the connection, but it is laying the foundation for why it is so important to consider the emotion, stress, reactivity, and learning and memory process are connected and contributing to cognitive and behavioral responses critical to homeostasis. So if we read that backwards, homeostasis, that is the brain regulating the body's chemical reactions is impacted by emotions and stress and learning and memory processes. When those are challenged, then there is going to be a disruption in the homostasis, which then goes and is connected to the the reward system. For example, limbic regions have been implicated in the coding of rewards memories for highly emotional events, such as why we might think of PTSD as a highly emotional event, and reward cue-based learning and feeding. In contrast, the prefrontal cortex is involved in higher cognitive and executive control functions in the re- regulation of emotions, impulses, desires, and cravings. While during normal conditions, cognitive is dominated 
by reflective cognitive during stress activity. During stress activity is dampened in the limbic circuitry hyperactivated. So one goes down and the limbic circuitry goes up, thus promoting automatic behavior that bias survival, including being vigilant for food cues. So in a way, it's describing, again, a more simplistic system of PTSD only with food. Both acute and chronic stress stressors increase synaptic branching in the amygdala and interior cingulate cortex, while simultaneously reducing synaptic contacts with the hippocampus and prefrontal regions. So there's a change in the pathways. This is a vital understanding that your brain has train tracks of synaptic pathways that are switched during different chemical reactions and different physiological reactions. This process further sculpts the chronic stress network towards limbic bias stress responses. The stress brain expresses both a strong drive to eat and an impaired capacity to inhibit eating, together creating potent formula for obesity. So we have arrived to the outcome and the result. Stress brain expresses both a strong drive to eat and an impaired capacity to inhibit eating. This is the end result of this cognitive functioning issue. These findings are consistent with behavior and clinical research indicating that stress or negative effect decreases emotional and behavioral control. So now there is a loss of control feeling. And we have discussed also that not only is food, uh, they have shown in research that both food and drugs use the same pathway. So in both instances, it is likely there is a decrease in emotional and behavioral control. And increases impulsivity, which may synergistically contribute to greater engagement in alcohol and substance abuse and eating. That is what the research indicates. So, while you have a decrease in emotion, emotional and behavior control, there's increases in impulsivity, impulsivity, and contributes to greater engagement in self-medication. What we can gain from our podcast are that all things in the body are interconnected and cognitive functioning, whether automatic or conscious, it is the foundation from which we need to approach interventions, healing, and training to positively impact behaviors. This research is the building block of understanding why it is so important to reach out and support the brain. In its desire to, when it's distressed or before it's distressed, to provide maximum, optimizing its ability to process, especially emotional information. Given that food and drugs of abuse appear to share similar mechanisms of action, again, this is from the research that we have indicated that given that food and drugs abuse appear to have similar mechanisms of action, interrelationships between food and self-medication is noted in the following research. Consistent with this notion, rats administered intraacumabins of opioid injections responded by overeating. Conversely, patients who underwent bariatric surgery 
and lost a significant amount of weight rapidly increased their alcohol use. So again, there's an inverse. Trying to get rid of one, it went to another. As food is an inexpensive resource for providing reward with hyperpalatable foods, that would be cakes, ice cream, and such, offering short-term pleasure and relief, relief is the key word, from discomfort, brain's distress, negative reinforcement and distress may motivate stress-related eating as a way to regulate stress responses. Self-medication, eating, stress-related eating as a way to regulate stress responses. Chronic stress, emotional eating. Chronic stress is often accompanied by anxiety, depression, anger, apathy, and alienation. Threatening and cognitively meaningful stimuli activate the emotional nervous system, which in part determines behavioral output. So again, the connection between emotional nervous system, which in part determines behavioral output. So again, we are supporting the fact that behavior is derived from emotional nervous system. Fight or flight, stress-induced elevations. GC secretes can intensify emotions and motivation. Given the reward, re- rewarding properties of food, it is hypothesized hyperpalatable, yummy foods may serve as comfort food that acts in forms of self-medication to dispel unwanted distress. So we are repeating this. The research paper repeats this over and over again. Individuals in negative affective states have been shown to favor the consumption of interest, self-interest foods, rewarding foods high in sugar and or fat, whereas intakes during happy states favor less palatable dried fruits. In other words, the worse we feel, the more we go towards those foods that make us happy. Following laboratory exposure to eagle threats, people exhibiting high negative effect or greater cortisol reactivity ate more food of high sugar and high fat. I think everyone, this is common sense, but research supports this and connects it to emotions. Similarly, in naturalistic settings, people with high cortisol reactivity report greater snacking in response to daily stressors. So connection between chemicals of cortisol and our feelings of snacking. Restrained eating. Restrained is another way of saying we are using behaviors to control our emotions or our our eating habits. So this is a review of that, a reviewing of behavior, trying to use behavior to restrain diet or to control diet. Restrained eating refers, and this is again in the article, by Potenza and Yao, uh, stress and behavior. Restrained eating refers to the voluntary cognitive control effort to restrict food intake, typically for the purpose of weight loss or maintenance. Cognitive restraint, which is the behavior, has been related to food intake under stress. This is trying to regulate cognitive functioning through behaviors. So you're consciously trying to restrain yourself. An individual is. Research goes on to indicate that highly restrained eaters 
the, in the research were observed, increasing and unrestrained eaters decreasing their food intake during stressful conditions. So those who were actually trying to control restraint ended up eating more. This response differs from that of emotional eating. While restraint is associated with greater food intake after stressors, emotional eating is linked to increased intake after ego threat stressors. So in either way, there's an increase in eating, whether it's emotional or while someone is trying to use restraint with an increase in stress. Restraint eating may exacerbate eating in response to food, food cues, stress, and other stimuli, whereas emotional eating may serve to ameliorate negative self-focused emotions. People endorsing higher levels of dietary restraint often show little overall difference in calorie intake compared to people with low restraint or in food intake while unobtrusively observed in laboratory and natural settings. Restraint may represent unsuccessful attempts at food restriction. There you have it. Eating less than one would during normal low-stress conditions while tending to overeat, overeat during stress. So behavior, trying to change cognitive function through behavior is basically a failure in most cases. This is our mantra, trying to change cognitive function can work, but as we have seen through research and common sense, it is also a recipe for failure. It is with our program, Emotional Pleasing, that in support of the cognitive function, we support positive behaviors, whether it's eating, social interaction, improved healthy decision-making, or just feeling less stressed and anxious. Research after research supports the need to address our brain's cry for help. In humans, a recent large-scale study reported that stress was related to various variables of increased drive to eat, including disinhibited eating, binge eating, and more frequent intake of good, uh, happy foods, hyper-palatable foods, chips, hamburgers, soda. These are, again... It is hypothesized that people actively try to restrain food intake may deplete the cognitive resource necessary to deal with the stress. So we have competing, what we have is a competition with emotional data in the brain trying to control when in, when in fact the inhibitory control, which in turn increases the likelihood of overeating, so it backfires. Basically, in competition of emotional events in the brain, unprocessed data, the trying to control something backfires and results in overeating. Lack of control over life events may lead to desperate and ineffective attempts to control eating, such as by deprivation from a particular food, followed by later binging. In conclusion, feeding is essential for life. The balance between energy storage and expenditure is critical for survival. It is therefore not surprising that neural networks that subserve feeding and stress responses form in early developmental stages. 
Again, this is from our research directly from uh, their studies. During human evolution, food was scarce and life-threatening stressors frequent. So elevated GCs level and depressed insulin levels, except when feeding, therefore, served an adaptive purpose. So all those things that we discussed that are now negative were positive in our free in historic times when there was more life-threatening stressors and they were frequent. So it was a positive in those events or those events. And now it is a negative. However, in our current environment, where food is plentiful, palatable, and easy accessible, proliferation of stressors may drive non-homostatic feeding. In other words, eating without metabolic need. So we have reached the point of where our adaptation, our environment has changed, and our genetic adaptation has not kept up to that social change. Weight-related adaptations of the metabolic neuroendocrine and neural pathways can together potentiate food preference. So that's a fancy way of saying these are things that can drive what we eat, craving and intake under conditions of stress. This may be noticeable among some groups that may have a reduced caloric intake but still gain weight. This is likely an adaptation in response to historic famine in the population. Those that survived did so due to their ability to live on extremely limited caloric resource for extended period of time. Let's hope for our future this adaptation is not needed. And we hope that we can as we have developed here, designed to support and help the brain adapt to the fast-changing environmental current times. While recent research has elucidated possible pathways for stress-related eating, there's considerable need for trying to better understand and prevent stress-related eating and non-homeostatic eating in general. This is why we are discussing diet and emotional budgeting program because we see this as a part of the strategies to prevent and or mitigate stress-related eating, leading to obesity and unhealthy diet. So we are addressing the foundation of exactly what we have discussed today with the limbic-driven and other chemical-driven synaptic pathways that drive us towards habits. Despite data suggesting potentially addictive properties of hyperpalatable foods that high in fat, sugar, debate exists regarding the existence of food addiction. Food addiction is generally overlooked in clinical settings. Large-scale prevention and treatment programs for food addiction, like those substances addiction, are lacking. This is research. This is not me uh, repeating. This is actually from the research saying that it is lacking. Physicians, nurses, psychologists, and other clinicians typically receiving little or no training in food addiction or its management. And we call that this article has indicated food addiction in the same way that it uses its pathways in drug addiction. So that's why it has come up with food addiction because the reward system that we have described is 
part of a link in regards to driving an individual to those dietary behaviors and identifying the foods that they eat, how much and when. So there are the examples. So the indication here today is there is a lack of treatment. There is a lack of understanding. There is a hope by integrating information across disciplines in order to promote the development of improved policy, prevention, and treatment strategies. Significant advances in halting and reversing the current obesity epidemic may be achieved and drug epidemic, of course, which is what our podcast is addressing, solving social behavioral issues through supporting our cognitive functioning, which in turn is supporting our brain when it's in distress. So how emotional budgeting provides, the program provides relief and supports cognitive functioning for those searching to build a foundational basis to control their dietary intake by addressing the distress of the brain feeling overwhelmed by unprocessed emotional data. This is it. This is what we've been talking about. This is our seventh podcast, not including the one addressing veterans. The connection of the brain to stress is a direct connection of the brain that regulates the limbic stress response system and the reward system. It does not take an action such as does not take simply the action of a dangerous event such as what may have been in his historic a bear or a lion jumping out from behind a tree or rock. The brain sensing difficulty depends on the same system fight and flight system, the reward system, to signal a problem as it has to signal as it were in the past when there was real danger around us. This is how and why the Emotional Budget Workbook was designed. To support our mind, lower the distress to prevent the synaptic and physiological signals from being sent or reduce the kinds of chemicals that elevate our fight or flight system, creating the havoc of maladaptive behaviors that lead to poor health, violence, and in general costing all of us taxpayers trillions of dollars in needless expense of daily functional difficulties. That's what this program was designed to address, the foundation. And I have gone over this podcast today in technical detail to describe what exactly, why this solution to addressing the cognitive functioning works. My next podcast will lead a discussion of ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder, along with cognitive functioning and the Emotional Budget Program. Consultations are available through my website, www.emotionalbudgeting.com. For parents and caregivers, individuals and educators, copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.com. Our program, Emotional Budget, 
for adults and for youth uh, is available in paperback on Amazon.com. I would like to thank our producer, Doug Newsom, and you, our audience. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time, this is Dr. Paul Sumpataro. Consultations are available through EmotionalBudgeting.com for parents, caregivers, individuals, and educators. Copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.com. Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time.